Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me in the studio today is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. Today we're pleased to have with us attorneys Bob Smith and Dana Fleming from the law firm of Nelson, Kinder, Masso, and Satterley in Boston, Massachusetts. Bob has 26 years of litigation experience, including 14 years as Associate General Counsel for Boston University. Bob has counseled multiple university departments on legal issues confronting higher education institutions. Dana has been with the firm since 2006. In addition to earning her law degree, Dana has earned a master's degree in education administration. Thank you very much for joining us today, both of you. You're welcome. Good to be here. Today's topic is the legal issues facing educational institutions. The Virginia Tech incident on April 16th of this year, in which 32 people were killed, made this incident the deadliest shooting in modern U.S. history and sparked intense debate about the responsibility of educational institutions and many other legal issues. I'm going to turn it over to Brendan Noonan now for our first question. Uh, Bob, you've been involved for many years as counsel to universities in legal matters. What are some of the issues universities will now face, and how has this changed the landscape of previous legal matters and issues? Well, if, if by your question you mean what, what will they you know, sort of now face in the aftermath of, of Virginia Tech, and I, I, I think I have that right. The basic tort fundamentals and insurance law concerns really won't change. But what we are seeing already, and and it happened moments after this unspeakable tragedy, is that a dialogue that's been going on uh, on campus for years now has heated up and spread to the legislatures. And and you're going to see some movement by, I suppose, the plaintiff's bar to press even harder the argument that uh, colleges and universities are guarantors of the safety of their uh, students. And you're also going to see from the defense side of this tragedy and the national conversation arising out of it some pretty strong pushback on uh, laws, rules, and regulations that, on the one hand, impose liability on colleges for criminal conduct and other bad outcomes on their campus, while at the same time tying the hands of college administrators and others responsible for a reasonably safe environment from taking appropriate steps to prevent such a tragedy. So I suppose the the short answer is the legal issues of negligence and duty and breach of duty and foreseeability and and who knew what when and what the steps were taken and whether or, though, whether or not those were the steps of a, a reasonably prudent college administrator to provide a reasonably safe environment. The legal standards aren't going to change, but there will be significant litigation around campus safety generally, around students with uh, mental health issues on campus. We're already seeing uh, legislatures around the country, including Congress, Bills are pending, some of which, you know, deal with firearms and some of which deal with modifying certain privacy laws that heretofore have hampered college administrators' abilities to uh, deal with students in crisis. Now, Dana, you recently had co-authored an article for a publication called The Chronicle, and why don't you tell our audience something about that? Certainly. 
Bob and I co-authored a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a very popular magazine uh, newspaper for colleges and universities around the country. And we wrote a piece on student suicide and college liability. And in this piece, what we tried to do was introduce some of the truly complex legal issues that schools face when they're trying to deal with mentally ill students on their college campuses. And the piece appeared in the April 20th issue and was available online the day of the Virginia Tech shootings. But this topic, this issue, is something that Bob and I have thought about for a very long time. And we actually submitted the piece months before the shootings at Virginia Tech took place because we both feel very strongly that this is an area of the law that creates a catch-22 for school administrators. And by that I mean schools on the one hand have a legal obligation to honor the privacy rights and the civil rights of the students on their campuses. And laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, and the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, really make this pretty clear. But on the other hand, schools also have a duty to, in some cases, a duty to prevent students from harming themselves and others. And so these sort of dual obligations can really create a problem for schools who may have students with mental disabilities, who may have students like the student at Virginia Tech on their campuses. So it makes it very difficult for them to take steps that simultaneously comply with laws that protect students' civil rights and privacy rights, but at the same time give them the freedom to protect students from dangerous individuals who may be already on their campuses. And, and, and let me just interject, if I might. There had been a number of high-profile student suicide cases that uh, resulted in uh, settlements and lawsuits around the country involving uh, MIT, Hunter College, George Washington, and the like. And those things have been in the pipeline for years prior to Virginia Tech. And, and what's often been heard is that the people on campus, and I think you saw this in some of the media for, uh, coverage of Virginia Tech, were frozen by their privacy and disability law concerns from even addressing the issue. One teacher had recommended that this young man receive counseling, and when she called the counseling center uh, to find out whether he had followed up on that recommendation, she wasn't allowed to know the answer. Dana, to what extent might a college's insurance coverage encompass the types of negligence that might be alleged against Virginia Tech in this case? Well, negligence claims like the type that arise in a situation like Virginia Tech or really any of the high-profile student suicide cases that we've seen over the last year or two, take, for example, the MIT Shin case, any of those negligence claims are going to be routinely covered by an insurance policy unless there's some finding on the part you know, of the insurance company or the courts that the school acted with some kind of intentional conduct or some element of almost criminality to the way in which, you know, they handled a particular situation. But if we're talking about, you know, sort of a run-of-the-mill negligence claim, that really should fall under the scope of, of any kind of, you know, well-crafted, broad insurance policy that a school might have. But the, the thing about Virginia Tech that's, that's interesting is, and that sets it apart from the other student suicide cases that have come down the pike the fact that what we're dealing with here is not just a negligence claim that may come from the parents of the student who committed suicide. And those claims typically involve a discussion of the school's duty to prevent the child or the student, rather, from committing suicide. And the, the claims usually develop with a discussion about, you know, here were the warning signs A through Z that you 
should have known about and should have acted upon to prevent my son or daughter from taking his or her life. But because of the enormity of the tragedy of Virginia Tech, that's not the only negligence claim that you can envision. There are other negligence claims about campus safety, the adequacy of the campus police force, the adequacy of the emergency notification systems on campus. So really, there there are a range of negligence issues that may come up. But again, those still fall within the scope of a typical negligence claim that should be covered by an insurance policy. Bob, what defenses of the college's actions might be mounted in a case such as this? Well, first and foremost, I think, and, and, and by way of background, you know, it's not that long ago in the law that people were not responsible for the uh, criminal acts of a third party. Uh, that's changed over the decades, and, and more and more landlords and others are responsible for the criminal acts of, of third parties. But really, the, the defenses for Virginia Tech or any other college faced with, with this sort of thing are that they, you know, that they, they're not going to deny they had a duty to have a reasonably safe campus, but they're, they're going to show uh, that they didn't breach that duty, that they took uh, appropriate steps to provide a reasonably safe campus, and that the uh, outrageous conduct and cruel tragedy inflicted by this uh, deeply troubled young man was simply not foreseeable by them in any reasonable way. And that's going to be bolstered, I think, in large measure by the admission on the part of mental health professionals about how extraordinarily difficult it is to perform any sort of risk assessment about whether or not a person is a threat to harm himself or others. Uh, good doctors from around the country struggle with this problem on a daily basis, and intellectually honest uh, doctors will tell you that it is far, far from a science. And so if the medical profession, and you'll, you'll recall in this case, uh, a judge uh, ordered uh, this young man to uh, inpatient mental health care, and the mental health care facility had decided to treat him on an outpatient basis. So apparently that mental health facility didn't consider him an imminent threat of harm to herself or others. It turns out to have been in wrong, and the defense of the university is, well, if the, if the mental health professionals can't make this assessment, we certainly can't make this assessment and ought not be held liable for the unforeseen acts that occurred on our campus. And so really, I think it comes down very much to whether it's a foreseeability uh, issue, whether, whether or not there was real notice to the school that this uh, kind of thing was about to happen, uh, and what, uh, whether or not they even had a moment to take any sort of protective action. Uh, in Virginia Tech, there'll be sovereign immunity issues because it's an arm of the state government. Its liability for these sorts of things are, are limited. But really, it comes down, in my view, that they did not breach any duty and that the, that the events were unforeseeable, uh, unknowable, uh, and frankly, unstoppable. There is crime and terrible things in this country every day, and, and most of us make great efforts to avoid those sort of things. But at some point, they become unavoidable, and if they are truly unavoidable, then one ought not be liable when they happen. Dan, I have a, a two-point question for you. Are there legal differences that a university would face as opposed to other educational institutions, such as high schools, grammar schools, or now even daycare facilities, and how do those differ from institutions like hospitals or even general businesses? Sure. Let's take the first point first. 
historically, there's a legal doctrine called en loco parentis, which, you know, is the Latin for in the place of the parent. And this doctrine historically applied to elementary schools, primary schools, any place where you were dealing with a minor child, someone under the age of 18. And the the theory behind this legal doctrine is that when you're dealing with children of that age, there needs to be a higher standard of care. When you drop your son or daughter off at second grade, you literally are placing that child in the school's hands to take care of your child as if the school was the parent. So the courts have always held those types of educational institutions to a higher standard of care, recognizing the lesser degree of maturity in students under the age of 18. Now, the doctrine of in loco parentis is not supposed to apply to colleges and universities. Once students reach the age of 18, there is an understanding that they are capable of spending for themselves and that the school doesn't need to be held to that same very high standard of care. But what we're starting to see, both in student suicide cases and just in some of the educational legal developments more generally, is that the doctrine of in loco parentis is coming back, and it's coming back under the guise of what we call special relationships. So in some of these high-profile student suicide cases, the schools are being held liable because the courts are finding that they formed a special relationship with the student. And all this really means is that they're finding that the school did have a duty to prevent the 18-year-old or 19-year-old or 20-year-old from engaging in a certain type of activity. So it's sort of a nuanced answer to your question, but yes, there are legal differences to the standards depending on the age of the student you're talking about, or in the case of a, you know, a daycare facility, obviously, again, that's going to be the type of situation where the daycare facility is acting in the place of a parent. So while there are legal differences, we are seeing the courts, however, start to hold colleges and universities liable as if students over the 18 were not really adults yet. And that may be a function of where we are in society today and how we sort of extend childhood up into young adolescence and even up into uh, you know the early 20s. And then whether or not this standard differs for hospitals and businesses, you know, I, I think that's a tougher question. I think when you get to a court or a jury, I think there is an expectation or a higher expectation for schools and colleges to take care of their students in a more pronounced way than you would see in a general type of business or even a hospital. The Allegheny case that came out of Pennsylvania is one exception where that was a student suicide case in which I think the jury deliberated for only about three hours before finding that the school was not responsible. But I think more generally, We're seeing trends where society wants to see schools held to a very high standard of care that maybe is unreasonable given the fact that schools oftentimes have thousands of students and are providing housing and other types of services that very much go beyond the scope of what a traditional elementary school will provide. Let let me just briefly agree with that wholeheartedly, but also add that the larger complex societal problems being laid at the door of the modern university really cry out for societal answers to that, not merely the placing of blame on colleges. There is no doubt but that the number of students on the average college campus today with mental health issues of one kind or another has vastly increased. And to take that societal and medical problem and lay it at the door of colleges and universities, in my view, is is really the wrong way to go. 
Bob, to what extent does an emotionally charged atmosphere, particularly from public opinion or media coverage, affect the defense strategy? Well, I have a pretty strong view that it shouldn't, but I also know from experience and, and reality that it does. There is no question but that there is a profound sadness on the part of college administrators following a, a death or a serious injury on their campus, a very human situation in which they want to reach out to the families and, and be helpful and provide services and compensate them in some way. There's a very human desire on the part of college administrators not to have the bad publicity of a tragic event uh, linger, which years of litigation will only enhance as you know the courts or as the newspapers and other media follow the trials and the pre-litigation events and that sort of thing. In the immediate aftermath, there's a natural human tendency for people who should know better to speculate about things like causation and things like who knew what and who said what and a lot of sort of finger-pointing and second-guessing and hindsight predictions go on, and that's just sort of the human reaction to anything like this. So it does place a much more strain on, on the defense of the case. It requires uh, early intervention, I think, by the lawyers and by the insurers to get control of the crime or accident scene and to restrict access to information and to preserve evidence. So it does vastly complicate the defense of these things, although once you get to the pretrial and trial stage, the plaintiff's bar certainly has the emotional appeal to the jury, the horror that they can play and replay and the videos that they can replay uh, and replay, which vastly complicate our jobs as people defend colleges and universities for a living. But thankfully, the court system and the jury system you know, has uh, rules and policies and evidentiary rulings in place that in the cold, harsh light of a trial, oftentimes the emotion will not rule the day. But it's certainly an element that people evaluating the risks of a trial certainly have to take into consideration, and there's no question but that responsible insurers take that very much into account and will use that to not only establish their reserves but to plan their defense strategies going forward, because nobody wants to be perceived as being cruel to the you know, the parents of a, of a student suicide victim and putting them through a trial and all that sort of thing. But by the same token, those of us who believe that schools ought not be held liable for this need to insist that we defend these cases with compassion but vigor. Thank you very much, Bob and Dana, for joining us today. They're both very informative. Any further comments? Well, we, we're, we're going to continue to work on this issue and to study this issue and to write and speak on this topic. We think that it's very much a exploding and involving area for your readership and your listenership, and all of us need to get a handle on it because I, I think we're going to see tragically more of these things, and we have to find a way to deal with it. What we don't want, I think, is for colleges and universities to become like airports. I don't think anybody wants people to have metal detectors in the doors and not be able to have toothpastes and gels and shampoos in their knapsack and all that sort of thing. And the harm to our society from the loss of that freedom, particularly in, in colleges and universities where freedom ought to be the word 
of the day and of the semester and of the year and of forever uh, ought not be diminished in any knee-jerk response to an unspeakable and, in my view, unforeseeable tragedy. Right, and I'll just add that there are proactive steps that colleges and universities can take short of becoming the next airport security system or minimum security prison. There are things and actions that uh, administrators can, I think, in the wake of Virginia Tech, begin to examine and implement on their campuses to deal appropriately with students who may be suffering from uh, mental health problems. And there's a whole spectrum of programs and policies that I think many schools are going to begin to consider. Right, because I think, I think what, where people lose sight of it when they, you know, they think about privacy laws and, and disability laws that, that rightfully protect people against the discrimination on the basis of their disability, what people tend to forget in their analysis uh, of those issues are that the schools and colleges are not required to put up with the behaviors that flow from a disability. And so if those behaviors are threatening or abusive in any way, there are measures the school can take consistent with their legal obligations under the disability laws to remove threatening or abusive people from their midst. Well, thanks again to both Bob Smith and Dana Fleming from the law firm of Nelson, Kinder, Masso, and Satterley in Boston, Massachusetts. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan for joining us in studio today and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this podcast, go to podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for your future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed. Those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 